0: Good morning everyone. Um, So this morning's reading comes from Mark chapter 3 verses 7 to 12. A great crowd follows Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. It is good to be with you guys again this morning. Um, I always will take the opportunity to teach whenever uh, Joel gives me a chance so I am happy to be with you again to talk through Mark with you and as I get going, there's something that I've noticed about how Joel's been teaching. There's been a change in how he's been teaching and um, not not saying he's done anything but I can see him looking at me a little questioningly but um, what I mean by is when I first started, coming. When I first joined Stone Baptist and Joel asked me to teach, I asked him, well, how long do you normally teach? Like, how long do you want to keep a sermon? And he's like, oh, we try to keep like 20 to 25 minutes. And I was like, okay, so I've tried to do that in the past. But starting in Easter, and I noticed that this seemed to be happening when people actually started being in the room, that Joel's sermons weren't being 20 to 25 minutes uh, anymore. And I think part of that I mean, it's very apparent to me, because I'm the person who takes the sermon audio and puts it on our website, so I can really tell, okay, wait, there seems to be uh, longer than normal. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm just going to follow the example that my pastor has put in front of me and not worry about sticking to 20 to 25 minutes. Um, I'm not going to talk for like an hour or anything like that, but I just want to say if that if this feels like it goes on too long, just blame Joel. That's all I'm trying to say. Now, changes in preaching is actually a helpful illustration for what we're reading about today. Because our passage today in Mark, Mark's a change in Jesus' ministry. Um, and to illustrate this, I feel like we really need to build up some context, really look at Mark from an overall to see what, I, see what I'm trying to show you guys. Because remember, Mark, like all the Gospels, are kind of like documentaries, like, I talked about this last time I taught, but it's really, it's an interesting way to think about them, because essentially what Mark has done is he's taken a bunch of eyewitness accounts, most of them from Peter, and he has laid them out in a specific order, putting specific things together, because he's trying to make a specific point. And the point that Mark is trying to make is actually, he tells us right from the beginning, because the very first verse of Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Mark is saying that there is good news about this guy named Jesus and that he is God. And everything else in Mark is going to point back at this central point. And so what we have been studying so far is really kind of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? Mark 1 and 2, and even we're now in chapter 3, Jesus has been going around kind of building a foundation that he's going to kind of just continue to build off of as he continues to minister to people and reveal himself, and the big thing he's been doing is showing that he is the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for, but he's also been showing that he's not quite the Messiah that they were expecting. You see, Israel, the common theme thought back then was they were expecting somebody to show up as like this conquering king, somebody who was going to come and free them from the Romans, and I know that gets said a lot, like it's, I've, you know, growing up in the church, I've been told that all the time, but I always thought, you know, why? Why did they think that? Well, I mean, one famous passage where they take this from is also a famous passage we like to quote during Christmas, Um, but I think because we quote it so much, we forget that this is what the Israelites thought in the back of their mind when they were expecting a Messiah, and that's Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, which says, "'For to us a child is born.'" To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So they're waiting for somebody who's gonna come and gonna take over the government. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So they're expecting some guy who's gonna come, and his government that he sets up is gonna take over the entire world, and it's gonna bring peace everywhere. But not just that. It goes on to say, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So it's not just somebody coming, setting up a kingdom that's going to be over the entire world. It's somebody who's coming who's going to set up specifically Israel as kind of like the central point of that government. That's what they're expecting. And they really thought it was going that that's what was going to happen, because the end of that passage in Isaiah ends with, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And when God says that I'm going to passionately do something, you can believe that he's going to do it. But Jesus has been trying to get people to see him for who he really is and what the Messiah was actually supposed to do. It's almost like his entire ministry is telling people that they're focusing on the wrong Isaiah passage. Instead, he's like, no, you should be looking at Isaiah chapter 53, which says things like, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So how has Jesus been doing this? How has he been demonstrating that he's God, that he's been this Messiah that they've been waiting for? Well, I mean, if you just look at some of the things we've covered so far, Mark, it's very easy to see. Like the very first passage that Joel started us off with was the man being healed that was lowered from the ceiling, right? And he, in that passage, it's not that he healed him, it's that he said, your sins are forgiven. So right away he's saying, hey, I have the power to forgive sins. Only God can do that, huh? Let's put two and two together. Um, After that, um, he, he kind of starts challenging the religious leaders By doing different other different things. Like he starts eating and being with the people that they rejected. He has a he eats with a tax collector, which is like so scandalous for them. He challenges the religious leaders on their misunderstandings about things like the Sabbath, and even claims that he is Lord of the Sabbath, that he's the Son of Man, the image that we see in Daniel. In all of these, Jesus has been focusing on challenging a worldview, especially a worldview of those religious leaders and showing that they, have, that they were incorrect on how they viewed things like law and traditions. But like I said, today's passage is a turning point in Mark for the story of Jesus. Because first, notice how our passage starts out with. In verse 7, it starts by saying that Jesus withdrew. It, he has secluded himself away. He is no longer in the town, but now he is out by the Sea of Galilee. And right, that word withdrew is like he retreated, but that should ask, that should make us ask, well, what is he retreating from? What is he withdrawing from? Well, at the end of the passage that Joel taught last week, it said that the Pharisees were meeting up with this group called the Herodians and they wanted to destroy Jesus. So the first change we see is that Jesus is not going to be focusing on the religious leaders much anymore. Throughout The first part of Mark, many of the teachings he gives, many of the healings he does, many of the miracles he does, is almost like to in front of the Pharisees. It's almost like he's trying to confront them and show them that they're incorrect in their views, and it's almost like he's trying to say, hey, look, you guys have been waiting for a Messiah. I'm right here. But... It seems that they have now completely rejected him. And so, because they've rejected him, he's going to shift his focus from the religious rulers to the masses. I mean, and it's a bit sad when you think about it, because those are the people that knew the Bible really well. Those are the people that should have just picked up on it. There's a guy that suddenly showed up that's healing people, that's claiming these things, that says he can forgive sins. Like, all of that should have just been like little connections going off in their mind that, oh, wait, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for but instead of accepting him, they reject him. So Jesus turns to the crowds. And talking about the crowds, for the most part, the crowds, while they've been big, I mean, we've seen in the story with the healing of the paralytic, right, it was so busy in that house that they had to dig a hole through the roof to lower him down. Like, they've always had big crowds, but they've always been kind of local, See, this whole time, Jesus has been up in the northern part of Israel, in the area called Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee. And most of those people that make up those crowds have been local to that area. It's been a local movement. It's, I guess what I'm saying is that Jesus, he was famous, right? People knew who he was, what he was doing. But up to this point, he was what I like to call local famous. And what I mean by that is that every area has maybe like a pub or a restaurant or maybe like a local celebrity that... Everybody in that area knows, but if you leave that area, nobody will know who they are. Or another way to put it is that maybe there's a group that like is about a specific hobby or something that they all share an interest. So inside of that group, there might be somebody who's really well known, but if you're not in that group, if you don't care about that same thing, you're not going to know who that person is. Like for example, there was a guy who goes to the church that me that Rachel and I went to back in California. Um, his name was Jamie Schoolcraft. And I am pretty sure that nobody here in this room or anybody watching, unless somebody from that church (laughs) back in California is watching, knows who I'm talking about. But Jamie was a really cool magician. Like, he would do, like, magic shows for all the kids and stuff at the church. But he was a guy, his job wasn't necessarily to go out and perform. He would make magic tricks for other magicians. So if you weren't, like, if you didn't like magic or... If you weren't trying to be a magician, you probably would never hear of him. Now, one of my hobbies actually is magic. <laughs> I enjoy doing card tricks and other things. So that means that if I know that there's a magic store somewhere, I usually try to go look at it. Even though, like, I don't know it's just it's I spend way too much money on it for it to just pile up at home. But you know, everybody has that thing, right? Um, anyways, there was a time where Rachel and I were at a magic shop, and I don't know how. But it came out that we knew Jamie, and the people there kind of like freaked out. They were like, you know Jamie Schoolcraft? It was like, yeah, we know Jamie. He's just a guy that goes to our church. But he was locally famous. If you were inside of that circle, people knew about him. But what we see today is, again, a change. Jesus, in modern terms, has now gone viral. That's what we're going to see. He is no longer just locally famous, he is internationally known. Because I mean, look at verses seven and eight. If you have your Bible, if you, you can go through that with me. Um, but verses seven and eight have this list, and it's this list that tells about all the people that made up that crowd. First, it starts off of Galilee, which makes sense. He's, he's in Galilee, of course, there's gonna be people from Galilee in the crowd. But then it says there's people from Judea, which is the southern part of Israel, so that's saying that not only is there people from northern Israel, but now there's people from southern Israel. It's just, I mean, it would have been simpler for Mark just to say every, from all over Israel people were coming, but I think he's trying to emphasize that the influence is growing. So now there's people from everywhere in Israel coming to see him. And not only that, it also specifies the capital of Jerusalem. And I think that's just showing that that's where the temple was. That's where the religious leaders of the religious leaders are. So now Jesus is being really known, not just by the religious leaders there, but by the religious leaders of the whole country. But notice, it doesn't stop of Israel. It goes on to say that there's people from Idumea, which is Edom, which is, you know, that's the descendants of Esau. That's a country that was located south of Israel. But it's not just people coming from the south of Israel. There's people coming from beyond the Jordan River, people coming from countries east of Israel. And there's people coming from the countries north of Israel when it says Tyre, and Sidon. This list is intentional to show how, even though Jesus started local, his influence has started to grow. He has started becoming more well-known, well wider, wider influence. It would be like saying that a crowd had gathered here at the church, and they were from Ainsford, and then also saying, oh, but they're also from Kent. Actually, they're from all of England. Actually, they're from the whole UK. Actually, there's people here from countries in Europe. Right? It's like saying like, look at how big and diverse this group is. Jesus's ministry was not a local thing, which meant bigger and bigger crowds, right? I mean, it's gotten so big that Jesus says he had to, he asked his disciples to have a boat ready because there was just too many people. like if he needed to, he needed to get on a boat so that he could create some distance so that he could talk to all of them. And why were all these people flocking to Jesus? Well, it was because he could heal them. I mean, if you look at the end of verse 8, it gives the reason. It says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. It turns out that when you can miraculously heal people, you get popular. I mean, I guess that makes sense. And especially when you think about it, because there's no NHS back then. There's no A&E. If you get sick back then, you are just having to write it out and hope for the best. It actually kind of reminds me of a time when I was in the Philippines. Uh, I was in the Philippines visiting this missionary, and I went with him and a small team to this remote village outside of Manila, and my role was just to take photos and video of what was going on, but what they were doing was a medical outreach. So they were bringing a pharmacist with a bunch of medicine, they were bringing a nurse, they were bringing a dentist, they were bringing some other volunteers just to help out, and they essentially they set up shop in the church that was there, and by church I mean it was a paved cement slab with a covering that was the church and they set up there and they had people come in and they were able to get a checkup they were able to get some medicine get some dentistry work and the whole time whatever they did they also met with a volunteer to hear about Jesus so they could tell them this is why we were doing this and what amazed me about this was not the amount of people that showed up but where the people were coming from because as I quickly found out from talking to some of them They had literally walked three days, some of them, to come from a remote village to this remote village because this would probably be the only time in their life that they would ever see a dentist, that they'd ever get medicine, they'd ever be able to be seen even just by a nurse. And it was probably one of the few times in their entire life where they might have actually heard the gospel. And it was the same with Jesus. Hearing about his works caused people to come from far away. It didn't matter how far they had to travel because all they could think about was, if only I could just touch him. Yet, like I mentioned, this is a story of change for Jesus' ministry. Because you see, if we look back over what we've done, Jesus has been doing a lot. He's been healing a lot, he's been walking around, he's been doing a lot of miracles. Um, He's been healing, he's been casting out demons, and that's the type of things that the crowd has come to see. But if you look forward into Mark, as you keep reading Mark, you see that there's less and less about Jesus healing and doing things, and it's more and more about Jesus teaching. Now, that might seem like a reasonable strategy, you know. Heal a bunch of people, do a bunch of miracles, gather large crowds, so then you can start sharing your message so that a lot of people could hear it. Um, But what's interesting is, that we see in Mark is that as he switches the teaching the crowd also starts to fall away. If Jesus wanted to continue this trajectory of popularity, if he wanted to just keep becoming more and more influential, becoming more and more famous among the whole world, all he had to do was keep healing. Like if he didn't if he just didn't teach anybody anything and all he did was walk around and do miracles, he would have been known throughout the entire known world and he probably would his life would look completely different, and his ministry looked completely different, but that's not what he came to do. He came to be a suffering servant. Jesus wasn't focused on being popular. And this is a trap that we can fall in today. In fact, I think this is a trap that here in Stone and Ainsford that we need to be especially aware of, because it's, I mean, it's no secret, we want more people to come into this Church. We want more people in the room. We want to see the church grow, but if all we focus on is numbers, then we forget why we're doing any of this. I mean, it, if all, if we hold lots of events and we do everything we can to get people in the room, but all church turns into is just some kind of social gathering, what what good is it? And I know myself, this is something that I have to remind myself of a lot, because one of my big sin issues is pride. I always have to check myself to make sure that I'm not putting myself in a position to make myself look good, but that I'm pointing people to Jesus, that whatever I'm doing, I have a a good purpose behind it. Also, from what we can see from the big picture of Mark, is that there's a difference between somebody who is coming to try to Jesus because they want to follow him, and somebody who's coming to Jesus because they want something from him. Uh, perhaps you've heard of this thing called the prosperity gospel, right? It's this idea that you come, become a Christian, God's going to give you everything you want, and it sounds so good because the gospel focused on you and not on Jesus. I mean, in fact, at the beginning of the next chapter is the famous parable of the sower and the seeds. It's the one where there's a farmer, he's walking around, he has a bunch of seeds, and he starts tossing them out as he walks around. And some seeds fall on a path and they're quickly eaten by birds. And some seed fall upon rocky soil and while they spring up quickly, they quickly die out because they don't have any roots. And then some seeds, they fall among weeds. They do grow, but eventually they're choked out. But some fall on good soil and they multiply. And also in chapter four, we find out the meaning of that parable that the seed is the word of God being spread out and that the four types are the different reactions to Jesus as he spreads the word. That parable is placed there as like a commentary on how people have received him and how people will receive him. Because the seeds can actually be kind of divided up into two groups. You have the seeds that respond quickly and the seeds where there's some kind of growth, right? The first two, I think, reflect the attitudes of the religious rulers and the crowd. The religious rulers were quick to reject Jesus, and the crowd was quick to follow, but they're also quick to fall away as soon as Jesus stops giving them what they want. The second two reflect, you know, people who actually did want to become disciples of Jesus. Some of them seem like they really do want to follow Jesus where he goes, but throughout Mark, we see that when things start getting tough, when Jesus starts asking a lot of them, they start falling away. I mean, one person of the 12 disciples, you know, this is one of the 12, eventually, because he cares more about the world, is willing to betray Jesus. Yet there is a group of people who follow Jesus, and they multiply greatly. So I guess the question that we need to read as we see this crowd, as we see these large amount of people coming to Jesus, as we come to Jesus, we have to ask, how do we respond to Jesus? Are you quick to reject? Well, I I don't think any of you are quick to reject because you're all sitting here in a room that's slightly cold um, or you're watching at home, you know, so you've invested, you want to know more, so I don't think you've quickly rejected him. So maybe the better question for us here, those listening, is why do you seek Jesus? The Pharisees sought Jesus so that they could stop him. The crowd sought Jesus for personal gain. Some Sought Jesus only until it became uncomfortable. Yet some sought Jesus, willing to put themselves aside, their wants aside, and just come to Jesus. And they multiplied greatly. There is one last bit uh, in this passage that I need. I feel like I need to cover, and that's the last two verses, verses 11 and 12. It says, "And whatever, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him." They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, I've heard some people try to take passages like this and say, Oh, look, Jesus didn't think he was the Son of God. He was telling these people, telling these demons not to say that. And it's like, No, that's dumb. Because, like I've said throughout this whole sermon, Jesus has already presented himself as God in Mark. I mean, Mark starts off saying that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is God. So really the question is, well, if Jesus has already been telling people that he's God, why keep these demons silent? Well, I mean, there's a few thoughts that uh, people have when it comes to that one, is that having demons being the main way for people to figure out who you are might not be the best thing, right? It's, it's not the type of recommendation you want, like you, you don't want to be like, oh yeah, this demon tell, says that I'm a really good person, so obviously you should trust me, Right? You don't don't see a restaurant being like, come try our food. All the the murderers love our food, so you should try it too, right? Like, that's not the type of recommendation that you want associated with you. But I don't think it's actually quite that. I think it actually goes back to what I said at the beginning, that there's a misunderstanding of who or what the Messiah was and what the Messiah was going to do. Because in the previous cases, when Jesus has presented himself as God, it seemed to always be directed at the Pharisees and religious leaders at the time. It seems like he was telling he's telling people who should know their Bible really well, like he was saying like, hey, I'm this, I'm the bridegroom, which should they should be like linking in their head. Oh wait, God said he was the bridegroom of Israel. So he's saying he's God or I have the power to forgive sins or I am the Lord of the Sabbath or I am the son of man, right? He's told things to the the religious leaders, but they keep rejecting him of the crowd, Jesus seems to be a little bit more careful because the crowd, they wanted a king. They wanted somebody who would rise up and be this conquering hero and if they heard what the spirits were saying, maybe they would force Jesus to become that. And that's not just me guessing because if we look at John 6 15, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus didn't want his ministry to get derailed by people getting the wrong idea of who he was. Yet many people still did. Like there's still people that will get it wrong throughout Mark. In fact, the 12 disciples, the people that are with him the whole time, it takes them a long time. In fact, most of them still don't get it until after he's died and rose again. And we'll talk a little bit more about them next week. But think about it. If the crowd is already coming, mostly to just get something from Jesus, how much more will they demand of him if they put this false idea that he is a, this like conqueror on top of him? But one thing I want to pull away from this, this what might seem like an odd bit of information that Mark includes in here, is that Jesus really cares to make sure that people know exactly who he is and what he isn't he wants people to not get the wrong idea right and that's happened a lot today sometimes people talk about a jesus that isn't the jesus of the bible they talk about a jesus who is like almost a divine bank who will just give you what you want or he's like a genie that will just grant your wishes or like they'll say oh jesus totally agrees with me and What they say has nothing, like it can't be found in the Bible, but they manipulate him in some way. They manipulate his words to be like, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is totally just like me. But Jesus is our king. He is a king. But he's not a king in the way that the world expects a king to act. He is a servant first. And he has come to show us love, a greater love than we could ever understand. So we need to make sure that we're careful to understand who Jesus is and that we're following the correct Jesus. So what? Why do we study all this? Well, in our day and age, it can be e- we can easily get caught up in wanting to be well-known or famous. I mean, if you look at social media, I mean, it's literally kind of built around that idea, right? Social media says, oh, you need to get more followers, get more likes, get more whatever, in an effort to grow your influence. And as Christians, we can fall into this trap too. I mean, of course, we want to reach the most amount of people with the gospel. We want the most amount of people to hear the good news. Like, we want the most amount of people to come into this church. We want the most amount of people to watch our live stream. And, you know, if all we focus, though, is on those numbers, if all we focus is that that's our goal, but we've we forget then why we're Christians in the first place. If we were able to get a thousand people, say we got a thousand people watching live right now on our live stream, but all of them went away, not drawing, not being drawn closer to God. There was no point like, yay, we got a thousand people, but if they don't come to Jesus, it doesn't matter. And how we live our lives will show how we respond to Jesus. Every day we can test ourselves. We can see what kind of soil we are. You know, we can find out by the way we respond to Jesus' words, by the way we respond to the Bible, whether our roots are shallow or whether we're going to be one of those that multiplies greatly. We must seek to make sure that in all of the ways that we live our life, we are helping people come to Jesus. And not a fake Jesus, not a watered-down Jesus, not a Jesus that has been manipulated so that everything he says agrees with us, but the true Jesus, the one that was both human and God, who lived a perfect life, who came to show us how we were to love one another and conquer death so that we can live. So just three questions to leave you guys with. First, why do you follow Jesus? Second, how do you respond to Jesus? And third, what Jesus are you following? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for giving us just another opportunity to come together, to hear from your word, to just learn more about you, learn more about your son. God, I pray that we are a people that will seek after you, but not seek after you because we want something, but because we honestly just want to know you more. We honestly just want to just draw close to you, draw close to Jesus. God, I pray that we will be those seeds that fall on the good soil. That we won't just reject you quickly, that we won't just follow you quickly, but as soon as something gets hard, we run away, or maybe we follow you a little bit longer, but then we care more about the world than you, that we will just put all that aside and follow you wholeheartedly. God, I also pray that we'll be a people that will keep our eyes on you and not keep our eyes on the numbers that... Uh, are watching a live stream, the numbers of people that come into a church, that we won't define success by an earthly standard that will define success by your standard. Thank you so much for all that you've done and all that you will do. In your name, amen.